0: The one who has the victory in every area, in every area. Well, good morning. My name is Ben. I'm the lead pastor here. If you're joining us for the first time, we're glad you could be with us today as we worship Jesus. And we're going to turn to His scriptures right now. If you want to grab your Bibles, whether you're with us in the building or you're online with us, if you're able to remain standing for the reading of God's word, please do. We're going to be in James chapter 4, James chapter 4, we've been walking through the book of James all fall and I believe we have two weeks left, two weeks maybe, two or three, we'll see how it goes. Uh, James chapter 4, we're going to look at just verses 13 through 17, through 17. Here the reading of God's word, come now, you who say today or tomorrow, All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Amen. This is the Word of the Lord. I want to tag our text today, A Better Tomorrow. A Better Tomorrow. Let's pray before we jump in. Father, we are amazed at your grace this morning, that you are the one who fights our battles. You're the one who wins our victories. It's all you. You take down giants, you take down barriers, you win victories for your people because you are our king. Whoever is in the White House is not our king. You are the victor. And so God we pray for our people as John prayed earlier just that we would be a people not so caught up in, in the worship of power that we would forget who is on the throne. Oh Lord Jesus, as we look at this text, may You open our hearts, our minds, to hear what Your Spirit would say to us through the Word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. In 2015, there was a study released from Stanford University called Fear and Loathing Across Party Lines, subtitled New Evidence on Group Polarization. Now, the premise of the study is fascinating because the premise of the study is that polarization in our nation is at an all-time high. The summary statement at the beginning of their research is this. Effective polarization based on political party is just as strong as polarization based on race. Now, what makes the study interesting is they've been doing this study since 1960. And so from 1960 until about 2015, when the study was published, they've been researching and surveying people across the nation Uh, with different questions and different ways of measuring the polarization in our society. But one of the primary questions that they asked that I found fascinating, they would ask people this question. uh, Who would you be most disturbed if your child married them? In 1960, the top top two answers to the question are, number one, Someone of a different religion. Number two, someone of a different race. 1960. They've been asking that question, watching the progression and the changes, and just a few years ago they asked that question, what would you be most disturbed by? Who would you be most disturbed by if your child married them? Number one question now, or number one answer, sorry, number one answer now is someone of a different political party. Someone of a different political party. This was 2015, before the last five years. And what's fascinating is if you know the the history of our nation and what 1960 was like, and the racial hatred of 1960 that has now been surpassed in some ways by political hatred, it's terrifying. I mean, what it shows is that our, our hope, our hope is really found, right? Our hope is really found in what we hate. Or to put it another way, our hatred is shown by what our hope is. And it's, it's about this. We, we believe that our, our politics, all of us, we believe our politics will give us a better tomorrow. We believe that whoever you voted for on Tuesday, and I said this last week, and I need to say it probably every week for the next couple months, is whoever you voted for, we still love you. You're welcome at Strong Tower, whether you voted Democrat, Republican, Independent, whatever, whatever your choice was there. We, we welcome you. There are people sitting next to you who I guarantee you voted differently, whether you know it or not. And that's okay. But, but listen, all of us, all of us, at some level, have bought into the idea that a better tomorrow will happen through politics. And we bought into the idea because now we we believe that Tuesday was going to solve all of our problems. Tuesday was going to take away the stress. Tuesday was going to heal our nation. Tuesday was going to save the economy. And what happens is the people who win, they believe now we're in a better tomorrow. And the people who lose believe now we're in this bitter tomorrow. And I want to tell all of us at Strong Tower that all of us have hope for a better tomorrow no matter what happens. And here's why. Because what James says is that your hope is not based on who's in power. In fact, our hope for tomorrow is in He who owns all power. And so we come to this text as we've been continuing our series through the book of James, and we've been calling this letter, or this series on this letter, A Faith That Works. And James has been writing to a group of Christians who have been dispersed from their home in Jerusalem. And and we've talked about a little bit of why they've been dispersed, but, I mean, it was political chaos. You could imagine the emperor of Rome hears this rumor about a man from Nazareth who claims to be king. That's a political statement. They're calling him King Jesus, King Jesus. He's the Messiah who will take down the rulers of this land. If a king hears that, what are they going to do? They're going to try to squash that. So the emperor sends out this note to to the whole empire to say we're going to persecute the christians and they start in jerusalem and they begin to persecute the church and the church gets dispersed and here they are all throughout the mediterranean worried paranoid what's going to happen what's going to happen to our family what's going to happen to the church what's going to happen in my experience and james is writing to the church to say your hope is not in what's happening politically. Your hope is somewhere else. And so that's where I want to join in today for just the next few moments. I want to ask this question, how does the gospel give us a hope for a better tomorrow? And let's first look, if we're taking notes, at the God of tomorrow, the first point, the God of tomorrow. Look at verse 13 where James uh, begins. He says, come now, I love this, it's an invitation, come now you who say today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. I love that. In James' day, uh, there would be merchants who would travel around and they would go from city to city and they would be trading and making deals and, and they'd be, you know, working in business. And, and it was just common everyday language that they would say, you know, we plan to go to this town and then we go to this town. It's it's not necessarily bad, right? It's, it's good business that they would plan out their travel. And today, I mean, you would imagine we, we could do even more planning than they would do 2,000 years ago. we got smartphones. we got Google calendars that can sync across different devices. We've got GPSs that will tell us where to go. And in the middle of our route, it'll tell us there's a faster route. I mean, we can plan and plan and plan. We can stay busy planning not to be busy. And so is James saying that all planning is bad? I mean, is he saying that you shouldn't be planning at all? I don't think so, although people have interpreted this that way. And I think they're wrong if you take Scripture as a whole. You you look at the rest of the Bible and you see wisdom throughout the book of Proverbs as it talks about planning. And you see some of Jesus' parables talking about the, the wisdom of planning and what that looks like. But what James is really getting after is not the evil of planning, but knowing our position. Knowing our position in the plan, right? This is what Proverbs sixteen nine says, The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. This is what James is reminding us of. James is saying, we as Christians, we don't know what tomorrow holds. This is fascinating. Think about it for a second. You as a Christian, if you believe in Jesus, you know where you will be a million years from now. You know because of the promise of God and the grace of God because of Jesus and what He's done, you know God says you will be with Him. He's told you. And it's in His hands. But the strange thing is, you don't know where you'll be tomorrow. Isn't that odd? He's told us where we'll be in a million years. Hasn't told us where we'll be tomorrow. And this is where uh, there's, there's this mystery of his providence. right? Both are in his hands. The Eternity is in his hands, and so is tomorrow. He's saying, I am the God of tomorrow, not us. He is in complete control, not us, not a single atom in all the universe moves without the mind of God fully engaged. Or to put it another way, everything happens through his hand. Everything happens through the hand of God. Uh, Before his death, there was a man named Henry Nowen who who, uh, wrote his final book called Sabbatical Journeys. And he was on his his final sabbatical. He would pass away shortly afterwards. and, And he wrote kind of some reflections on his journey. And he writes about a friend, or a group of friends actually, who were trapeze artists. They were traveling around in this group. I forget the name of it. I wrote it down. What, what's it called? The, the Flying Rudellas. The Flying Rudellas. And, and he was friends with these people, and they were talking to him as he was visiting on his, sab, on his sabbatical, and, and they were talking to him about this special relationship between the flyer and the catcher. And, and, and it's fascinating to me, because I know nothing about trapeze artistry. I don't know any of that, but, but it's a real simple idea. He says, the difference between the flyer and the catcher is that they have their own roles. The flyer is the person who is, you know, doing stuff in the air, and and they're swinging around, and then at some point during the performance, they have to let go. They let go, and they fly through the air, and they're flying over the crowd, and everybody's cheering, and everybody's holding their breath because they're wondering what's going to happen next, and their role is just to hold still and wait. The best flyer is the person who can hold completely still and wait. And the catcher's job is to catch. The catcher's job is to use their big hands and to catch the flyer. And listen to what they said, or what Nowen says about this experience. He says, the flyer must never try to catch the catcher. The flyer must wait in absolute trust. Because the catcher will catch him, but he must wait. I love that image. He must wait. Listen, waiting to see God work is, it is the real work. It is the real work. Waiting is the work. It's the work that He's called us to. We, we can make our plans. We can outline our budgets. We can try to you know, negotiate things. We can make sure our schedules are, are efficient and all these types of things. We can cast our votes. We can engage in our local communities. We can do all those things. But in the end, we're just flying through the air, waiting, letting go, asking God to do His work that we cannot do. Right? This is the beautiful mystery of God's providence that our work is always and completely dependent on God's work. In fact, it's impossible for you to do God's work for Him. And so what James is inviting us into is to say, God, I can't do this, so you be God, because I can't be God. Or to put it a nicer way, let God be God and you be you. Just wait. Just wait. Because listen, God is already at work in the things that you can see, right? He's already at work in the way that He's already been the one who's providing for your every need. He's already been the one who's keeping your heart beating every moment. He's already the one who filled your lungs with breath this morning. He's already the one who's spinning the globe and moving the stars. He's already at work in the invisible growth of every living creature on the planet. He's already at work in the changing tides of history. He's already at work in the triumphs and failures of every politician. He's already at work. There's no work in all creation that we go first. We always join in. We join in what God is doing. And His greatest work, His greatest work is in the unseen work of the human heart. It seems amazing that He works in the things we can see, but the greatest work that God has is in the unseen work of human hearts. And listen, parents need to hear this. Friends need to hear this. Co-workers need to hear this. Activists need to hear this. Listen, you can't change hearts. You can't change hearts. But God can. And He does and he's better than you, he's better than me, he can change hearts. And so what God is calling us to do is not to change people, right? It doesn't mean you don't have a role, right? We all have roles. It doesn't mean you don't talk to people, it doesn't mean you engage with people, it doesn't mean you love people, you empathize with people, but what it means is you humble yourself to say, I can't change people. I can't even change myself. How am I going to change them? You're not in control. He's in control of the seen and the unseen. He is the catcher. He is the one that we wait on. And this this perspective, James is inviting us in to reimagine how we view ourselves. And this is the second point, the mist of of today. Look at what he goes on to say in verse 14. I love his sense of humor. He says, what is your life? What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. I mean, James is asking throughout the letter, if you read the letter at another time, you can see all these questions. He's always asking these piercing questions. And here he goes asking another piercing question that echoes the wisdom literature of the Old Testament, particularly Ecclesiastes. If you've read Ecclesiastes, it's wrestling with this purpose of life. What is the meaning of life? What is the meaning of life? And Over and over, he's asking this question, and then James pulls it out of the Old Testament. He says, what is your life? Now, our culture today would define life by ourselves, right? What's your life? Well, my life is my career. My life is my kids. My life is my bank account. My life is my politics. My life is whatever it is. You fill in the blank. The culture around us wants to define our life by something related to us. And then I love what James describes us as here, so humbling, so incredible, to our strange, uh, self-centered ears. He says, you are a mist. A mist. One author I was reading said, imagine if you somehow uh, became famous and they wrote a biography about you, and this was the title of your biography, a mist, appeared briefly, then vanished. And it was one page. That's what James is saying. James is is challenging us to humble ourselves and, and hold this tension that you see in the Scriptures all throughout the Bible. You see this tension that we are both great and small. That we're great, we're made in the image of God and there's dignity and there's honor and there's worth to every human being. But we're also made out of the dust of the earth. And we're humble. Nothing gets closer to the ground than the dust. He says we are this majestic human being, but we're also a vanishing mist. I mean, it's challenging our worry and our anxiety about the future by reminding us who we are and who we're not. That we worship either the sovereign God or the sovereign self. And that's exactly what worry is. Worry is the worship of self. Worry is the worship of self. Let me, let me ask everyone here just for a moment. Raise your hand if you can tell me, or you, you know, you don't have to tell me. If you're watching online, don't, don't shout it out. What, what's the name, the first name of your great great grandfather? Just raise your hand. Do you know the, the first name of your great great grandfather? How about his father? Very few hands. I mean, just think about that for a moment. I, I had the, the privilege of inheriting when my grandmother died a few years ago. We, uh, apparently, I didn't even know it existed. We had a Fitzwater family Bible that my grandmother had been holding on to. And, and when she passed away, she gave it to me. I guess they thought it was a good idea to give the Bible to the pastor in the family. I don't know. But I inherited the family Bible That I had never seen before. It's this humongous Bible, bigger than the pulpit. It's brown leather, it's old, all the pages are like going bad and turning colors, and the binding is torn. And the most fascinating thing to me about the family Bible was in the front of the family Bible, someone in our family had decided to write down a list of names going all the way back to 1850. Names I had never. Heard, never knew these people. I mean, right now, the the one I can remember farthest back, I think was like in the 1850s, 1860s, and his name was James Fitzwater. All it says is his name, when he was born, when he died. And as I was thinking about that recently, I was thinking, here's a man who, I, I don't know anything about his life. I just know one line of text, his name, his birth date, his death. I'm thinking, here's a man who had a family, he had friends, he had a life, he had a career, probably he had had all kinds of things that he was doing in his life. And just a few generations down the line, his family doesn't even know who he was. And that's a sobering thought. That even your family, at some point, will forget you. You're a mist. Now, James is not trying to bring us into some deep depression. He's trying to to help us feel the weight of what it means to be a human created by God, not God himself. That you're made in his image to reflect him, but you're not him. What he's inviting us into is, is to embrace our limits, to say, I'm not him and that's good. Right, Every one of us, because of our humanity, is limited. We are limited by time, we're limited by age, we're limited by energy, we're limited by knowledge, we're limited by experience, we're limited by our our age, our energy, all of those things. And that's good. Our limits aren't given to us by the devil, they're designed by God. To humble us. To bring us low. And to say, God, I need you. I'm, I'm dependent on you and you alone. And, and let me tell you, this is, this is against the culture that we live in that preaches a gospel of materialism. And let me tell you why. The gospel of materialism says you are defined by getting more and more and more. In fact, your life shouldn't be limited. It should be unlimited. You should have and gain as much as you want. And that's the definition of success. So you should have more money. You should have more influence. You should have more power. You should have more success. You should have more children. You should have more, whatever, more, more position in your career. More, 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 more. And James is inviting us in to a different way of seeing life. Because the gospel of materialism preaches that your happiness is in your gaining. And so when you gain, you're applauded. But when you lose, you're shamed because you feel like my salvation is in my stuff. My salvation is in my position. My salvation is in my political party winning. My salvation is in the approval of my friendships. My salvation is in this world. And so i got to hurry, 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 hurry to the next thing, hurry to success, hurry to get this, hurry to be with that person, hurry to experience something. You're always in a hurry because you believe that's where your redemption is. It's in in our culture. It's deep within us. Our church staff has been reading a a fascinating book called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, and uh, I would highly recommend it. It's fantastic. It's an easy read. But uh, there's, there's a story that he tells in how he got the, the title, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. He says it was a conversation he heard about between a pastor and kind of a famous author. His name is Dallas Willard, and he's written classics on spiritual formation and uh, spiritual disciplines and just kind of the spiritual life of a Christian. And so this pastor was being mentored by Dallas Willard, and he calls up Dallas Willard one day and He's in kind of a panic. He's in a low moment in his ministry and in his life, and he's depressed, and he just kind of explains what's on his heart, and he says, I don't know what to do. I I don't know how to get back to where I was. I don't know how to get my soul back. He says, just tell me, what what do I do? And Dallas Willard pauses on the phone. He says that was what he kind of did all the time. He just long, awkward pauses. So long, you thought maybe the phone, you know, dropped the line or something, and he says, are you still there? Yes, I'm just thinking. Okay, uh, you got any ideas? He says, here it is. You must eliminate, you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. You must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. And of course, this pastor who's in a panic crisis mode, he, okay, great, great. And he writes it down, writes it down. What, what else you got? That's it you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. What he was getting into was this. Hurry, is, it's the arrogant fruit of an anxious heart. Hurry, it's, it's the arrogant fruit of, of I'm always worried. And, and it's deep within us. Jesus said it better. Jesus in Matthew 6 said, And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And Jesus goes on to say, if God can take care of the birds of the air and feed them, if he can take care of the lilies of the field and clothe them, how much more are you going to be taken care of? What Jesus and James are inviting us into is to reconsider who you are in light of God, that you're not God, but he is. And he cares for you. He loves you. Why are you in such a hurry? Why are you so anxious? I'll tell you why. Because you think highly of yourself, just like I do. We think it's up to us. We think it's up to us. And so if we fail, everything fails. It's deep in our hearts. And so to slow down, to slow down, and to say, I, I'm going to depend on God and wait for the catcher to catch me is a spiritual act of resistance. It's to say, I, I'm not going to buy into the lie of the culture that says I have to have everything and I have to have it now and I have to have more of it. I can slow down and trust him. So what do we do with our worry? We, we take it to God. And this is where James closes and The last point, the grace of trusting. Look at verse 15, what he says. I love this. He says, instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Many people today have taken James' words and and turned it into kind of a slogan. If you've been around church for a while, you probably heard somebody, maybe a little bit on the older side, but they say things like, Oh, I, I'm not sure if I can come over this week because if the Lord wills, I'll be doing it. And, and it's kind of like this catchphrase where people say it. It's at the end of Christian emails. It's at the end of you know bumper stickers. It's if the Lord wills, I'll do it. And sometimes, I mean, that's done in a good heart, but I think a lot of times we're just saying stuff. We're, we don't even know what that means. It, it's kind of an excuse for I don't really want to commit and we'll see if something better happens. Right? So it, it's a slogan that gets thrown around the church that really doesn't have maybe the meaning that James was getting after. He wasn't trying to create a bumper sticker that gets you out of awkward moments. James was after a posture of the heart. A posture of humility and surrender. Right? This is why he contrasts it with boasting. He says, boasting is is, is, is in your arrogance, right? Boasting is, is saying, I'm lifting my will above God's will, and so my will is the final word. My will has all power. My will is ultimate. And so, boasting is, an, is a heart that's arrogant, that's deeply willful. And listen, but a humble heart, a humble heart is one that surrenders to God's will and is eager to trust. Eager to trust. Why? Because a humble heart knows the heart of God. A humble heart knows the heart of God that's pure and powerful. Charles Spurgeon said it like this once. He said, when you can't see God's hand, you must trust his heart. When you can't see what he's doing or you can't understand what he's doing, you must trust his heart that he is a good father whose will is for you and for your good. Or to put it another way, trust surrenders my life to God's love. My life to God's love. It reminds me of the three Hebrew boys that, who were uh, in the fiery furnace in the Old Testament. Maybe you know the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were friends of Daniel, and they were in exile, right? And under this authoritarian Nebuchadnezzar who was you know, telling everybody they had to bow down and worship him and bow down to this idol made out of gold, this golden image. And everybody around them is bowing down, and it seems like everybody should be doing this. It seems like the easy way to make progress. It seems like the way I can make success in my career. It seems like this is okay. But these three boys decide it's not okay to bow down to anyone else but God. And so they tell them, we're not going to bow down. And of course, Nebuchadnezzar, what happens in his rage, he says, well, if you're not going to bow down, then you're going to be thrown in the fiery furnace. He lights the fiery furnace up as they're leaning over the edge. He says, now where is your God? How is he going to save you? And I love what these courageous young men said. They said this, oh, king, we have no need to answer you. No need. What if we all did that on Facebook? We have no need to answer you. But listen to what he says: Our God is able to deliver us. But if He chooses not to, we will not bow down still. Our God is able to deliver us. He has all power in His hands. He is able to bring us out. He's able to redeem us. He's able to keep us safe. Our life is in His hands. But if He chooses not to, we'll still follow Him. We'll still bow down to Him and Him alone, not to your idol. God is saying, I will be with you. He can be trusted. Of course, Nebuchadnezzar, not happy about it. Nebuchadnezzar's rage gets greater. He heats it up seven times more. He throws the boys into the fiery furnace. And when they throw them in, they are shocked at what they see. They start counting people. There's one boy, two boys, three boys. There's a fourth person. And not only is there a fourth person, they're all walking around in the fire. Everybody who reads this, all the scholars say this this is some appearance of God in the midst of the fire. This is an appearance of God to say, I'm going to be with you in the midst of the furnace. I show up to protect you. I show up to save you. I show up for your good. I show up in the midst of whatever you're going through. I'll be with you. No matter what I do, I'm for your good. Jesus himself was faced with this same troubling choice. It was the night before his crucifixion. Everyone was about to abandon him. He's feeling the weight of our sin, the weight of our misery. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane, and the name Gethsemane literally means the oil press. Jesus is feeling the pressing on his soul. He's feeling the pressure of our shame, the pressure of our guilt, and literally his body is being squeezed by our sin and blood is pouring out of his pores. And as Jesus is feeling all that weight, he cries out to his Father. He says, is there any other way? Is there any way this cup can be poured out? And he says, but nevertheless... Not my will, but yours be done. Not my will, yours be done. Your will be done, Father. Your goodness be done. Your plan be done. Not mine, but yours be done alone. Listen, Jesus saves us by his own surrender as He made, up his way, or made His way up Calvary with the cross on His shoulders, as He wore that crown of thorns with stripes on His back, as He endured the shame of nakedness exposed before the world, He surrendered for us, for our sin. He surrendered to the judgment that we deserved. He just surrendered to the guilt that we bear. He surrendered to the misery of hell itself to save us, to love us, to redeem us, to heal us. And the gospel is a call to follow him in that surrendering. The gospel is not just a call to believe. The gospel is a call to bow down. To say, Jesus, you're not just my lover. You're my Lord. You're the one who gets to call the shots in this relationship. And so I lay down my life before you. Whatever happens, not my will, but yours be done. Not my will for everything that I desire, but I give my desires and my ways and my paths towards you. He's inviting us to lay down our worries and give our hearts to worship Him. To worship Him. And so as we close, I just want to ask everyone this morning, where, not if, but where in your life do you need to surrender to God? Where? Because it's all of us. It's all of us who who have given our wills full reign to roam and tell everybody and tell ourselves that we're the own God of our lives. And Jesus says, it's time to surrender and trust me. Trust me, trust my heart that I'm for you, not against you. And I am bringing about my purpose that's greater than any of your purposes. Let's pray. Father, we are, again, grateful for grace that is new every morning, grace that we need, grace that we don't deserve, but we are so amazed that You give. Grace towards the people who would rise up and say, we know better than You. Grace towards the people who would boast and flaunt towards others when our will is done. and not when theirs oh god humble us but in the midst of the humbling may you give us hope yeah. give us hope that a better tomorrow is not because of what we say or do or believe but because we trust you yeah. we trust you on the throne yeah. we trust you in every heart that you're changing every family that you're redeeming every nation that you're working towards the shalom and the justice and the goodness of your creation. God, you're redeeming all things, not us. Help us to follow you. Help us to trust you and work as we follow you. In Jesus' name, amen.